people are the most consequential and dangerous forces on earth. Well, personality psychology is about the nature of human nature. It's about people. And wouldn't that be useful to know? I mean, it seems to me, I can't, I can't think of a more important problem. You're listening to the Science of Personality podcast, brought to you by Hogan Assessments, the global leader in personality assessment and leadership development since 1987. Your hosts are Hogan Chief Science Officer and world-renowned personality psychologist, Dr. Ryan Sherman, along with Hogan PR Manager and resident storyteller, Blake Lepp. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Science of Personality podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Sherman, along with my co-host, as always, Blake Lepp. Say hello, Blake. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Science of Personality podcast, episode 38. Today, Ryan and I are joined by Dr. Bradley Brummel, Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Tulsa, to discuss employee engagement, which has been a hot topic within the global workforce for many years. If you've been listening to the podcast since the beginning, you might remember Brad from episode six when we brought him on to discuss professional development coaching. Well, in addition to his expertise on that topic, employee engagement has also been one of his primary research areas. So we thought he'd be the perfect guest to join us to discuss this hot button topic. With that, Brad, is there anything else you'd like to add about yourself before we dive into the episode? Well, this is actually sort of one of the topics that I've been doing the longest, and it really started with uh, sort of the history of doing uh, job attitude research at the University of Illinois, where I went to grad school. And then at one point, my advisor said, hey, can you make a scale that works pretty much exactly like the Gallup Q12? And so that was my first attempt to sort of make a a parallel version of a scale that happened to be copyrighted, which is always an interesting academic pastime. Uh, but that actually led to sort of my first big event at the PSYOP uh, conference in Dallas in 2006, where I ended up on a panel uh, discussing the topic of employee engagement uh, with some pretty big names um, in IO psychology. And then from there, my uh, colleague uh, Rashad Dalal and myself uh, wrote a commentary for a journal in 2008 and from then, I've been doing, you know, some research on the measurement of engagement and how it relates to other hot button topics like mindfulness and on the measurement of engagement, which is, a, you know, a big pastime of all personality and IO psychologists. And in addition to that, I've actually designed, implemented and reported on engagement measures for a few different uh, small to mid-sized companies. And so I've uh, been involved in most pieces of this whole engagement puzzle uh, over the last uh, uh, decade and a half or so. Well, th- thanks for that background info, Brad, and, and for some of our audience members who you know may not remember from back in a previous episode. Uh, y- y- you know, you just mentioned that you did your PhD work at the University of Illinois, uh, which is a, uh, a really a, a prominent feeder program for lots and lots of IO psychologists. So um, th- there's a, a long talent pool of, of success in IO psychology that comes from the University of Illinois. So uh, Brad comes from that background of strong ex- expertise in IO psychology. Um, from the previous episode, we know you talk, you do a, a quite a bit of work on executive coaching. Um, so you've done, done that as well. And again, I would encourage our listeners to go back to that episode to listen to that one as well. Um, you've also done quite a bit of work on uh, things like professional ethics and, and sexual harassment, also um, topics that are um, 
they never really seem to go away. They always seem to be pretty important topics. Um, and so maybe in a future episode, we'll have you talk about that. But we're super excited to have you on here today to talk to us about employee engagement. So, so thanks so much for coming back, Brad. Absolutely. Yeah, and of course, um, you know, Bob and Joyce Hogan founded the, the IO Psychology Program at TU, uh, where, where Brad is currently a professor. And so we have a bit of a pipeline there as well of a lot of, uh, you know, IO psychologists coming from that program uh, and, and coming over to Hogan or, you know, whether they're interning or whether they, they um, join us full time. So, so Brad has, you know, shaped the minds of many of the people who are actually on the Hogan staff as well. So um, we, we definitely appreciate everything you do, Brad, and, and uh, helping uh, groom the next generation of IO psychologists. So, uh, with that, first and foremost, you know, we brought you on to talk about employee engagement. So to kick this off, why don't you tell us what is employee engagement and how would you define it? Yeah, this will end up being a theme throughout our discussion because the definitions that people use and the degrees to which they actually comport or uh, agree with the methods in which they use to measure it is one of the core pieces um, for this topic. So is it anything new? Is it old wine or new wine and old, uh, you know, wineskins is sort of a constant refrain in both personality and IO psychology. And this construct sits sort of squarely in the middle of that. And especially so because really the people who started using the term employee engagement um, in force were consultants who were more or less rebranding their typical employee surveying efforts to try to stay ahead of their competition um, and sort of work in this space. And so it sort of had this um, interesting um, pathway of sort of practice to science instead of some things that sort of go science to practice. And that really underlies sort of a lot of why it remains a hot button topic, because sometimes the scientists will sit back and argue that's not really engagement or you're just doing things to market stuff. Um, and so we can discuss more of that specific issue going forward. But uh, for this question, I really prefer a definition of engagement that focuses it on a psychological state um, uh, that uh, captures the degree to which you are showing vigor, absorption, and dedication towards your work. Uh, and so um, that definition um, really forces you to focus on something that has affective components, um, and that's about your current uh, focus, both mentally, physically, and behaviorally, um, and affectively on the work um, that you're doing. So, Brad, you, you mentioned Gallup's work earlier on engagement. I think they're sort of uh, pretty widely known as, uh, for better or for worse, as sort of being the gold standard in measuring engagement or, or something like that. Um, how would you say your definition or the definition you use to think about engagement is similar or different to their definition? Yeah, I think it's really different in, in the way because of what Gallup does with their measurement. So really, you could think about what Gallup is doing with the Q12 is measuring like drivers of engagement. So they're measuring whether people are getting feedback at work, whether they have the resources to do their job, whether they have friends in the workplace. And all those things really end up being, from a psychological research perspective, um, things that are preconditions to allow you to be in a state of engagement more of the time. So if you want to measure a company that's likely to have more engaged employees, they're likely to have these attributes. And then the beauty of the attributes are those are things that the company can actually fix more directly. 
where if you're being asked to influence um, on sort of a direct intervention perspective, the degree to which somebody is currently working with vigor, absorption, and dedication, um, you get into sort of more difficult places um, from a company perspective. And so this whole area really struggles from a bit of precision around what is a precondition or a work environment what is an evaluation of a work environment broadly across time? What is someone currently doing right now? So within person differences in the degree to which they're in this psychological state and then the outcomes that we care about in the workplace. So the job performance, the uh, organizational citizenship behaviors um, and these types of things. And so I've done some work sort of pulling apart all these things, which sometimes are all measured with the same sort of version of employee surveying. And so it's a really, it can be a really messy place um, to work from a construct precision perspective. So I get it. So I think that the, the, the way to think about it is that Gallup is sort of measuring these um, things that we, they're not really measuring engagement per se, at least not with that Q12 measure, right? That it's, um, they're not, they're not going to tell you how engaged your employees are. They're going to tell you uh, to what degree you're setting up the right conditions that could um, create engagement or could generate more engagement or at least would allow for employees to be engaged. And there's some advantage to that because you can take action in response to those. You can say, okay, you're not doing well here. But that's, that's kind of interesting because um, – you know, uh, if the model isn't totally closed, right? If they have not said, okay, these are, this is it. There's nothing else that impacts engagement. Then there's a lot of opportunities to, or a lot of situations that could occur where you actually have a really engaged staff, even if you're missing on one of these points, or um, you you could have uh, you could be hitting on all of those points and still have low engagement. If that does that does that make sense to you? Yeah, you could, and the big part is to say, and this is really the way that the good survey works with companies, is you say which one or two of these levers is truly within your control and might differentiate your ability to make this type of work uh, engaging, which is sort of a different challenge than sort of saying, okay, someone isn't at work today, you know, showing a lot of vigor, you know, what should I do about that? So it kind of allows these cross-company comparisons of features that lead to engagement. And it does allow you to do some sort of um, strategic choice into what to focus on um, if you're an organization. Um, So that that piece of it um, becomes useful in other ways. So, Brad, you co-authored a book chapter titled uh, Personality and Job Attitudes. And I would imagine one's attitude toward their job is closely linked to employee engagement. So I guess my question now is how does personality affect employee engagement? Yeah, and, and there's differences with which the degree to which people discuss employee engagement as a job attitude. Um, in that chapter, we kind of put it in exactly the same space. Um, And then the next question becomes, well, you know, how trait like or how influential are um, personality traits, you know, for employee engagement? And it really drives to this question of, you know, if we want engaged employees, maybe we should just hire ones with personality traits that make them more likely to be engaged. Um, Southwest Airlines is somewhat famous for that. You know, if you don't hire people with negative affect, you hire people with positive affect, they'll tend to be happier all the time. So also happier at work. But to link back to your question, um, what 
it's really important to think about what personality traits are and what job attitudes are. And in some ways, personality traits can be thought of as your tendency um, to have, you know, stylistic um, attitudes, cognitions and behaviors within a domain for solving life's problems. So if it's conscientiousness, then you're, you know, engaging in behaviors to create order. You're thinking about things that are going to happen in the future and you're having sort of, you know, feelings that align with that. Well, attitudes are also affect behavior and cognition, but toward a specific target. And so what makes attitudes more precise is both um, the fact that they can be a little narrower um, temporally, but they have a target. And so one of the questions that you end up having is which traits um, include elements that make you more likely to have a specific attitude when you focus on the target that is your job or that is your coworkers or that is your supervisor. Um, and we use them both kind of as predictors of job performance. So there ends up being a lot of theoretical modeling work around um, which ones are most important uh, for, for predicting an outcome, but also which ones you might be able to intervene in. So, so Brad, I think to me what this implies is there's a couple of things here uh, when we think about personality and engagement. One is that certainly there's personality characteristics that are more likely to show engagement uh, with just about any job in just about any organization that are just going to seem to have a more positive attitude towards work, um, no matter what that work is. So that's part one. But then part two, I, it also seems like there's probably the same thing from a manager point of view, and, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit later on, um, that it seems like certain personality characteristics of leaders or managers or supervisors um, would be able to create the, those kinds of conditions we referred to earlier um, that would lead to more engagement. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does make sense. And, you know, one of the things to sort of go back to is if, you know, we're talking about engagement as being in a state of, you know, vigor, absorption and dedication, then certain traits are um, indicators that people will spend more of their life um, in those states and tend to orient towards the world in that way. And so in that way, you can find people whose traits make them more likely to be engaged more often. And these things end up being like high positive affect or extroversion, conscientiousness aligning with things like dedication. Um, and then again, certain types of jobs will provide features that fit people's personalities, which means that they'll feel like themselves when they're working, which uh, makes it a lot easier to be engaged. This sort of ties back to what you mentioned earlier, too. And this is one of the really nice things of taking a personality perspective towards this uh, question. Because if you just say, hey, I want more engaged people, then you're not actually thinking about the uniqueness of people based upon their traits or the uniqueness of what a specific job offers. And so certain jobs that would be very engaging to some people, um, like, I don't know, the work of going through lots of manuscripts to do meta-analyses um, aren't engaging to someone who might be more extroverted and want that kind of social attention. Um, and so, you know, when you actually start to bring in the idea that jobs have different affordances and people come with different tendencies towards what they find engaging, then you end up with a really interesting mix where you can differentially sort and motivate people towards engagement. 
Well, okay. So Brad also, how important are values as part of this equation as well? You know, I, I think that's a, a great question. And one of my favorite pieces of sort of the, the Hogan toolkit um, and really just this question overall of values is that it's it's where you can find where people might align or misalign in terms of um, being able to be engaged in a workplace. So whether using something like Schwartz's values or sort of the MVPI, you can actually find people telling you this is something that I'm oriented towards. So this is the kind of thing that um, draws my attention, that I'm likely to choose to put effort into, that I can be dedicated towards. And so by creating value alignment, either by actually changing the work environment or through a variety of motivational techniques, um, an organization or a specific supervisor has a really strong lever for sort of doing the individualized um, engagement work um, that really good leaders do. And so this ties back to sort of why I'm becoming enamored with the idea of coaching is that very few people teach leaders how to do this part of the puzzle. And so they'll do things like say, we taught you how to do your job and we pay you well. Why aren't you engaged? Um, And then you need to start explaining to people, you know, about psychology. Okay. So for my next question, How does employee engagement or lack thereof affect organizational performance and success? Yeah, I mean, the general um, outcome here is that, you know, more engaged employees are more likely to lead to organizational performance and success. And this is really what made um, the topic so hot starting in the early 2000s. And the argument was that, like, you can be satisfied with your job, which is sort of the primary job attitude, and just sit there all day long and play video games on your phone. And so the engagement work, at least from a sort of definitional and um, sales perspective, was like you can't be engaged in your work and not be doing your work. And so that was the initial piece. But the, the next answer is that, like, you know, well, it's true that almost every job or organization will do better if it's if their employees are more engaged rather than less engaged. There are um, certain types of jobs where um, they're not very engaging. And for all the organization seems to care, you just got to kind of be there. And so if a job doesn't have the elements to be engaging, then sometimes a company will pay someone to sort of be in a spot to direct people where to go. And so some jobs working on certain assembly lines, working in certain factories, you know, they require some level of engagement as it's defined, but not the highest levels. And they tend to show up um, where the work productivity isn't that discretionary. So something shows up to you and you have to paint it or you have to move it along whether you're really into it with vigor and absorption or not doesn't change the workflow. Well, you know, Brad, I, I, it also occurs to me that there could be on rare occasions, I think for, for the most part, most organizations and companies would prefer to have their employees uh, heavily engaged versus not engaged. But it, it does seem like there could be circumstances where an employee might, <laughs> it might be problematic to be overly engaged. And again, I think these would be rare circumstances, but I could imagine just to make something up, uh, you know, uh, uh, anything on the detection side. So something like a police officer who's sort of over-engaged in, uh, you know, uh, crime identification, um, 
right? You know, trying to identify crimes that when there's really no crimes there or something like that um, could be problematic as well. Although I suspect in practice, those are pretty rare. Yeah. And I, I think there, there are jobs that also sort of require intention and involvement. And there's a whole raft of job attitudes, which kind of talk about how we want to bring employees to work. Do we want them involved with their job? Do we want them committed to their work or their other employees? And each of them, do we want them to experience justice in the workplace? And each of them have a slightly subtle, different theoretical background and argument behind them. And in IO psychology, we get really concerned with the measurement side. But one of the things that we did in one paper was kind of look at this sort of psychological state of mindfulness, though we measured it more as a trait compared to engagement. And, you know, one of the arguments um, that my colleague Eric Dane at WashU and I have been thinking a lot about is, well, which jobs don't you actually need to or do we, do we not want you to be fully absorbed and dedicated to, do we want you to have a little bit more psychological distance? So if mindfulness is sort of this state of present non-judgmental awareness, there's some roles where we would really prefer that. And if you think about your example, like as an investigative police officer, if somebody's so fully into their work that they're not paying attention to the other things around them, or they're really going to get that conviction, but they don't notice that they have evidence which actually doesn't support it, so they're moving towards conviction of someone instead of the truth, we have some trouble there. Um, it also goes to the idea of how much time someone can truly spend in an engaged state um, just from a, um, you know, survival or, you know, performance perspective. Yeah, I, I think also like these uh, social media content moderators would be another one where it feels like too much engagement could be a little problematic. Well, so Brad, you mentioned, you know, that employee engagement really became a hot topic in the early 2000s. Um, you know, now we're in 2021 and, you know, depending on what literature you read, you typically see that somewhere between 65 and 75% of the global workforce is disengaged or actively disengaged at work. So if this has been such a hot topic for so long, almost 20 years now, why do you think that's the case that the, the, the engagement numbers are, or disengagement numbers are that high. Yeah, I have a, a sort of a number of, I don't know if I call disparate themes uh, on this question um, that I think are, are differentially maybe important. One way actually goes to how companies have approached um, their measuring of engagement. And if you go to sort of a large company who does this, one of their biggest deliverables is your relative engagement compared to other companies. And if they give you that and you're sort of not in a horrible position, what you'll do with that is you'll say, look, our employees are engaged enough or as engaged as our competitors, so we don't need to do anything about it. Um, and so then they'll advertise how engaged their employees are, but not use it as sort of a continuous improvement internal metric um, kind of a, a issue. And so maybe we'll talk a little bit more about this uh, later, but there are very fundamentally different approaches to using engagement to change your, your organization. And uh, a, a certain kinds of measurement will actually really derail that work. Um, a second piece, which I think is really important, is the people who ultimately make decisions at most of our companies right now are people who come from finance and from business. 
and the um, data that comes from um, employee engagement surveys uh, has a hard time changing the minds of people when they're actually showing future finance um, forecasting. And so there's this issue where you're having people struggle to put this type of data effectively into an understanding of, say, talent management. Um, Another piece here is I think we've continued to use the technology revolution to make systems that are effective, but really dehumanizing and demotivating. I mean, if you've ever worked with an HR management or learning management software system, it ends up making a bunch of decisions about the workplace, which actually end up um, being very demoralizing to the people on the back end of them. And since there's no human in between, no one even notices. So this kind of pulls into my my broad question where a lot of companies and bosses don't sort of have really any background or training in terms of thinking about motivating their employees. Uh, When do you learn how to think about the engagement side of your work as a supervisor or as a company? Um, And do the people who are busy thinking about that get promoted to positions of power in terms of company design? So, you know, all of these pieces kind of come together where um, we have organizations talking about engagement, but ultimately acting like it's your paycheck that should be doing that work. Uh, And so, um, honestly, companies aren't built to make workers um, satisfied, engaged and happy. They're built to make money in a competitive environment. And it's really a long game, you know, more than the next um, reporting period and your quarterly financials that you're trying to do when you're trying to build a company where people truly have an opportunity to be valued and then to work with engagement. So many streams there. But one way to say it is it's a lot harder and takes a lot longer investment than many other solutions that are potentially at people's fingertips. Yeah, I think those are really good points, Brad. Uh, it reminds me of this um, example, of it, and, I, and I won't remember the exact name of the, the warehouse, but this was a warehouse in somewhere in the Pacific Northwest um, that uh, was going through some big technology changes. And essentially, the, the, the way it was done before was there was you know, most of these guys drove, and it was almost all guys, drove forklifts uh, around through the warehouse, picked up the thing they needed, took it to where the truck was, and the trucks would get loaded, and they would, you know, um, those trucks would go out, new trucks would come in, and this was pretty much what was done all day, right? They would unload trucks and load trucks and moving things through this warehouse. And that was all done via basically a person was the sort of a, a point person for the warehouse. It's like, okay, this, we need somebody to go pick up this, you go pick up that, you go pick up this, and sending different people to different places. And they would always come back to this person, report back to this person to get their next pickup. Um, and apparently, uh, it was actually a pretty engaging uh, amount of work. The, the employees there seemed to like it. Um, they got to spend a lot of time, uh, you know, sort of uh, chit-chatting with each other and taking coffee breaks and this and that in between their their pickups. Um, but then uh, a new company bought bought this warehouse. Said we're going to revolutionize it with technology. Uh, we don't need this guy who tells you to go pick up. We've got it all mapped out. Everything's on a code. Um, we know the most efficient routes. We have computer algorithms that will tell you uh, where to go. And so that's what they did was they put in this, you know, this computer algorithm system where, uh, and basically, you know, it, it dramatically increased productivity, but engagement went way, way, way down. Workers really just hated doing this job now. Um, every time, you know, everything was recorded. Every, 
deviation from the, the most uh, efficient route was noted, um, and you could be penalized for that. Uh, your coffee breaks or restroom breaks were timed. Um, you know, so how much time are you off the forklift? Um, and so it was much more efficient. So to your point about, you know, creating that, that you know, more profitability, better bottom line. But uh, in terms of the long game, right, I, I have no idea what's going on with that warehouse now. But when I'm looking at um, companies struggling to find workers right now uh, across America, you kind of wonder, would a company like that be one who's like, wow, we're really desperate for help now? Uh, mostly because the, the work we do here is just is very unengaging. Yeah, and I think, you know, without doing it, there, there's two pieces that come up here. Like, first of all, like the people who are oriented toward the finance and development side of things actually are rewarded a lot more by sort of commerce values and making money. And so when they are trying to design systems for other workers, sometimes they forget the fact that other people are more motivated by, you know, things like affiliation and sort of these different um, systems. And so they're like, well, you know, we can make more money this way and you'll get a little bit of it. Isn't that compelling on a day to day basis to be engaging? And again, some of these things are, well, what's engaging work for a human? So we can make efficient work, but for work to actually be meaningful and actually be absorbing, it's got to hit us at the level where our skills and abilities sort of meet the nature of the work being done. And so by taking sort of the psychologically rewarding pieces out of work, you create a lot of trouble. And there's a, an interesting piece that I've seen coming from these pay systems where there's been a lot of workers in the United States that are classified as hourly workers, but they act like their salary. And they do so in ways like every week they just report that they worked eight to five with an hour lunch break. And then, you know, that's just for the pay system, but they do the work that needs to be done. Maybe they work on weekends, things like this. Well, a great thing like a paycom system actually records all of your time and make sure you're accurate for legal things like paying um, overtime if people go over 40 hours. But it forces people who thought of themselves as members of a community and salary workers um, and maybe even knowledge workers like in IT to think about themselves now like, um, uh, you know, hourly employees who are just there for the time they put in. And that's how they get their money. And that fundamentally changes your engagement with a company. Um, and I know at like my institution, we had somebody um, quit the first day that it was implemented. And he's like, I'm not I, I'm not a clock worker um, was the idea. And so some of these downstream implications of efficient technology are really under considered. Um, and when companies are confused at why people quit. It's because the people who make the decisions and even the people who supervise the people who are having to deal with it don't experience these sort of little slights that uh, make it harder to be engaged in the work itself. All of this, I can't, it, it reminds me so much of the episode of the U.S. version of The Office where um, they introduced the computer system and you know, for selling the paper and Dwight spends the entire episode trying to beat the computer and seeing all the employees kind of rally around Dwight trying to beat this, uh, this machine. Um, I don't know. That's the, I, that just, I couldn't help but think about that whenever you were having that or whenever you were explaining that, but, um, and, and Blake, there's, there's an interesting thing here too, where I, there's a, there's a great book that I teach out of in my class. It's called the thought of work. Uh, by John Budd out of Minnesota. And he goes through 10 different things about work, what work can be for people. 
And sort of this exchange for money, this disutility thing is only like one piece of an economic view of work. And there's work as identity, there's work as personal fulfillment, there's work as a curse from God. All these different perspectives that people have about what work is underlies their opinions about work and whether they're even able to be engaged in it. And I think as a field, we have done way too little to think about the received assumptions about what work is and work towards a more efficient way of getting task X done takes a very non-humanistic view of work. And when no humans decide they want to do the work that you've designed this way, then that's perhaps a lesson for people to maybe refocus um, their mindset on what it, what it actually means for them to have a company that uses humans to do things in society. Brad, do you think the COVID pandemic has amplified any of this at all for people? In the sense, you know, thinking, uh, you know, as far as there's a lot of talk about the great resignation and all of that right now. Um, How much of this do you think could be, you know, could you point the finger at a lack of employee engagement at some of these organizations? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, honestly, I think what it's done for many people is given them just enough distance to step back and look at the company and say, well, what am I actually getting out of doing this work? So when you're running day to day, when your supervisor is sort of crafting your world for you, when it's just the rhythm of life, you don't take that much time to take a couple steps back and say things like, well, who would I be if I didn't do this job? What other options might be out there for me? And I think a lot of people have looked at that and said, you know what, like, man, I have other interests. I mean, there's people who have said, you know what, I can live on things if I just have the flexibility of, you know, doing, you know, something like Uber Eats or not having a full time job, but actually pursuing the things I'm really passionate about. And so, again, I do think that the pandemic and really some of the remote work has let people take a step back and either feel or deeply think their way through um, what work really means to them and what type of work uh, are they willing to do? Interesting. So, okay. For my next question, it's actually a two part question. And the first part of it is, you know, what can organizations do to improve employee engagement? Yeah. I mean, the first step, you know, really goes to, um, you know, having a model about what that means. And so, um, I think what happens a lot is people say, well, I want to improve employee engagement. And so they do something, you know, they do some marketing campaign to tell their workers why they should be happy or something like that. And I think that's, um, you know, a little bit short sighted. And sometimes people can see through that marketing if you're not fully committed to it. But I think, you know, there's it does show up at kind of all levels of what we use in IO psychology. So from a selection perspective, you know, you could use personality traits to make the intentional choice to not hire people who are predisposed um, to truly be disengaged. You know, and this looks like, you know, um, or or by their personality, create disengagement by other people in the workplace. So the standard advice of hiring conscientious um, people um, who have positive affect and who aren't highly neurotic creates an environment where at least the people aren't making it hard to be get engaged in the work um, that's being done. And as I mentioned before, there are some differences with which type of people 
will be likely to be engaged in the work that your company does. So having a clear picture for what the work you need to be done is and which type of people are most likely to be able to be dedicated and absorbed into that work um, is an important piece. And then the other side of it really is to, if, if I was running a company, I would actually make it the business of all supervisors and leaders to be focusing on what would lead to more engagement in their workplaces. So when you make it um, a supervisor's responsibility for their workers to be engaged, um, that changes the dynamic a little bit, you know, and in a space where you can't get people to take your job, it becomes even more important. You know, there's a saying that people don't quit jobs, they quit supervisors and leaders. Well, you know, that has a lot of truth to it, especially in a time where uh, the fight for talent is, is stronger. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting perspective, Brad, to think about, you know, as a leader, um, you know, how could I make my employees my more engaged? How could I make the people who work on my team, how could I make my staff more engaged? What could I do to improve their each, you know, at, at a personal level, not right, just, oh, just generally, right? How can I go for, for each employee, each member of my staff and make them more engaged? I think it's a really interesting way to approach your job as a leader. And I would bet 90% or more don't think about, don't think about their jobs that way. Well, and this is specifically where in my coaching work with especially new supervisors, I spend time, you know, pulling through the MBPI sort of work. And I describe to them them kind of as this workplace love languages thing, because that tends to have resonance with people here, where what you find rewarding, the people who work for you might not be rewarded by the same things. And so I really encourage people to either use assessments or just to try some little hypothetical or sort of some hypothesis testing. What happens if I do this um, to Johnny, right? And, you know, one of the things I pull people back to are things like attachment theory. You know, someone will say, I told somebody in a stern voice that this needed to be done um, by this deadline and they didn't do it. And I said, well, maybe, you know, um, nothing was serious in their house until there was actually a physical threat. Now, it's not something you should do, but it points out the fact that people are coming to the job with all kinds of different um, motives, values, and expectations about what makes something serious. And then on the flip side, what would be truly rewarding and engaging? And so if you know that one person really loves one job and another person can be truly engaged in another task that your unit needs to do, to have them do the other task is actually um, a really big lost opportunity. And so to actually have discussions like who actually likes which thing, you'd be surprised at which thing that half the people think is miserable. The other people think is kind of cool. Um, and so, again, there's there's a lot of little opportunities if you take your job as a supervisor as a bit of like a detective to find out who loves which work. Um, you can um, solve some of these problems in creative ways. OK, Brad, so the second part of my question, and I think you could look at this, you know, if an organization either a has determined that they might have um, a problem when it comes to employee engagement or B um, they did diagnose that, okay, this was a problem and have taken active steps to try and improve the situation. I guess the question comes down to what can organizations do to measure employee engagement, whether it's, you know, kind of at the front end or after they've tried to, to make improvements. Yeah, this is sort of 
the huge question. And this is the question where, you know, IO companies sort of live. Um, you can do, um, there's so many choices. Um, you can actually buy a simple survey monkey or a Qualtrics software with preloaded questions and have your HR department send out a few survey items to get a sense of what's happening. Um, or you can go all the way to spending a lot of money to really bring in a company that will not only do assessment, but give you uh, scores across all kinds of companies in your industry and then actually break them down to the unit level and then help you go through the entire process of actually communicating back with your employees, including focus groups, including telling them why you chose to focus on a certain two or three tasks for the next year. And then the remeasurement that comes something like a year later. And so this is, uh, a, I mean, we just gave a talk um, with another former student um, at uh, HR Southwest, really talking through all the different choices you need to make in measurement to implement sort of a true commitment to employee engagement. Um, and one of our warnings, though, is that the worst thing that you can do is do a survey once or maybe twice a year or, or, or two times and then do nothing with it. So I tell people that I'm kind of a measurement agnostic, whichever you measure you choose is has strengths and weaknesses. But if what you do is you tell your employees you care about their engagement, you get them to fill out a survey, you bother them five times, so you get 85% participation, and then you don't like your results. And so you'd never give them feedback on them or you change nothing. You're making a very strong message that you don't actually care. And so there's a lot of companies that don't have the infrastructure um, to actually deliver on what they claim they're doing, which incidentally can create less engagement um, if you do it wrong. Yeah, that, that's really interesting, Brad. So it's it's pretty easy to get seduced by the idea of an engagement survey. Maybe you read an article uh, in the Wall Street Journal or something on engagement and the importance of employee engagement. Or you listen to this podcast and you heard that employee engagement is really important. Um, it might be tempting as an owner of a business to say, that's it. We're going to measure employee engagement, right? We're going to, we're going to do it. But to your point, unless you're really serious about doing something with that measurement, giving employees feedback, letting them know what you're doing on the basis of the survey results, um, uh, you can actually create the opposite problem, right? You can demonstrate that, you no, know, even though you 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 think you care and you want to show employees you care, you can end up actually demonstrating that you don't care by, by not following up, by not following through on those results. Yeah. And one of the places it comes across, well, there's two big things. Maybe one is that like, when you get the results, you decide that you're going to now tell the employees why they're wrong about what they're experiencing, which I see happen a lot. They're like, Oh, these employees don't understand how good they have it. I'm going to tell them now which again, right. doesn't always uh, come across the way you hope it does. Because again, if employees are feeling disengaged or they're saying they're not experiencing something, um, you kind of want to take them at their word. And if you say, well, you're lucky to be here because we're better than another job, you're clearly saying, I'm not hearing you in this space. Right, uh, right. And then the other part of it is, especially if you go to the level of unit level engagement as a marker for supervisor success, um, which I think there's good reasons to do sometime, are your supervisors ready to hear the truth about how engaged or not engaged their leadership is, is making um, their subordinates? And in a lot of organizations, um, they, they're not healthy enough from a culture perspective. 
um, to be ready for that. And so, you know, a supervisor with uh, low engagement scores for um, their unit will then use it as a reason to essentially be hostile to people and threaten them for giving them poor engagement scores or something like that. And so you can create a lot of systems that are unhealthy if you're not doing this fully in terms of an, of an organizational intervention or organizational development. So lots of organizations do get seduced by the idea of engagement. And I think they do truly believe that they hope to create a more engaged workforce. But unless you actually invest in doing it well across the organization and train the leaders how to use the data in meaningful ways, including things like goals for the next year that they have the resources to implement, you're going to end up um, with results that you have no idea what to do with. And sort of probably, even if you don't mean to, um, make it even clearer to your employees that their feedback isn't really valued. Yeah, and I think to one of the points you were making there, Brad, I, one of the things I would be concerned about with measuring engagement would be to what degree are my employees going to respond honestly or um, be afraid that an honest response will be met with some sort of retribution from the supervisor, right? That, oh, uh, so you're not engaged, huh? Well, then I guess it's time to fire you. Yeah, or, you know, I've done everything I can. I can't believe these employees don't notice it. You know, let's find a way to, you know, either outsource this work or, you know, bring on the robots or something. You know, and so that's a, a big piece of the puzzle. And I also think this, this, you know, not to sort of keep going back to the same topic, but we are, as organizations, we rarely prepare people to sort of deal with and give that kind of feedback. So we promote good individual performers into supervisor roles. We teach them how to use the HR software to make sure everyone gets paid. Sometimes we teach them how to do the stuff when you have to fire somebody or there's an ethics complaint or there's something in terms of sexual harassment. But to actually teach people to do the identity work around what it means to be a leader and grow in the leader such that you would welcome engagement feedback that shows where you have weaknesses that's not something that we do a lot of anywhere sort of in our companies. And so to see those things fail when we drop that data on people and say, use it, um, shouldn't be that much of a surprise. Well, to piggyback off of what Ryan was saying, uh, or he mentioned, you know, to the degree that employees are answering these items, you know, honestly in an engagement survey. So let's say if just, you know, let's say you can score it one to a hundred um, and a, a, you know, they do the engagement survey and it comes back at say 25 and we'll call that not good. Um, to what degree can an organization consider those results accurate? I mean, should they just assume that, Oh, it comes back at 25, but there's probably a lot of employees who are maybe concerned about, you know, answering and being too critical that they should just assume that the score is lower or do, if, you know, should they maybe assume that it's it's actually a little higher because maybe you do have some employees who are just being overly um, critical of of the organization? Does is that making sense? Well, yeah. There's a lot of ego defense and confirmation that bias that happens when the results hit. You know, especially when a supervisor is comparing their results to their supervisor friend who's sort of next door. Um, you know, I think 
this is my, my specific preference for organizations is to not outsource this work, but I guess this would be like hire more IO psychologists internally to help you do it right. Um, and the reason for this is, you know, maybe 25% engagement at your company is an increase from last year. And one of the tough things about this work is some jobs are just not going to be as engaging. They're dirty. They're hard. The work is mundane. You just have to get through it. They might not be uh, safety might be a huge concern. And so when you compare people on their engagement scores across industries or job areas, you really can make erroneous uh, wrong conclusions because you're actually comparing apples to oranges where supervisory and above people tend to be more engaged. Um, they have more autonomy. They just have better jobs for humans. And so these are some of the issues that show up um, in this space. And so, again, if you're a company that's serious about this, I think you need to dedicate resources towards it. You need to give the HR or, or organizational develop or people analytics, uh, people in the organization, real power um, to dictate what people will do. And then you need to focus on yourself. So you need to use your same survey or measurement device year after year and say, are we doing better or worse on these things? And is our improvement stability or even decreasing things in line with our strategic um, goals and changes for this company. So that's how you do it in a sort of um, intentional way that makes it part of the culture. Okay, Brad. So my next question, you know, because uh, Hogan, we, we like to talk about the dark side of personality uh, quite a bit. Um, how does one's dark side personality characteristics affect their engagement in the workplace? Yeah, I mean, that's a it's a great question. Um, it, it got me thinking, you know, really, um, well, I got I got a topic to discuss maybe in, in a minute, but I, it, it got me thinking more broadly about going back to sort of Horneye's uh, basic models for how we deal with stress sort of in this derailer space. So, you know, if you're someone who has a tendency to move away um, from stress, then, you know, if you get too much going on, you're probably going to do things that are various forms of psychological disengagement. Um, if you're somebody who moves against, then your engagement is going to be with work, but you're going to take that vigor um, and that absorption and potentially put it towards things that aren't quite as healthy for the organization. Um, and so you might actually stay engaged, but your engagement might not be towards organizational preferences or outcomes, but towards other things. Um, and then if you're sort of a moving towards person, so if under stress, your deliberative or dutiful thing happens, then you'll dive in and just work really, really hard. But you might see sort of the workaholism, um, the burnout, um, some of those issues showing up there. And so I think you're going to see different qualities of engagement um, for some of these sort of dark personality traits, especially as people really, you know, kind of feel the stress of their job, they're going to engage slash disengage in their own characteristic ways. Um, and, you know, one of the, the notes that I, um, you know, had here is something that's really entertaining to me to think about is, what does it look like if your company has someone who's uh, really high on Machiavellianism and is super engaged, right? Like, are they sitting there being like, look at me, I'm the puppet master. I'm spending lots of time making these people dance. I don't know. <laughs> it could be a problem. Maybe you want some of your dark people to be less engaged. 
Interesting. And it's a great point about the, the dutiful and, and, you know, in the moving toward where it could, you know, eventually result in burnout. I had not even thought of it that way, but that's, that's actually a really great, great point coming from somebody uh, who has a very, I think dutiful is my highest derailleur along with mischievous. Um, so um, <laughs> I could, I could see that happen whenever, whenever sometimes I just maybe overwork myself to the point of getting burned out from, from time to time. Um, yeah, that, yeah, those are really interesting points. Thanks for sharing those, Brad. So last question here before we wrap this up. Um, for those workers out there who find themselves disengaged at work, w- what advice, Brad, would you give them to improve their situation? Yeah, and um, I really like this question, you know, partly because it uh, you know allows us to do sort of the individual help advice side, which IO psychology is only sometimes known for. You know, the field sort of um, can be blamed for uh, developing uh, around um, coming up with ways for getting employees to work harder for the same amount of money using a variety of tricks of management. And so um, we've sort of expanded some from that to thinking about how you really put the power in the hands of the worker to assess the situation and think about what's happening. And so, again, this is, you know, one of my, I don't want to say favorite questions uh, because it really changes that dynamic. So we're not taking sort of the position of the people with a company who are trying to say, how do I get more out of these workers? And really saying, if you're a worker, how do you really own your situation? And this really ties back to what we were talking about earlier. I really think the first step uh, is to do some intentional evaluation with some psychological distance. And so when you're in the day-to-day of a relationship, when your boss is, you know, being abusive or yelling at you, when you're tired at the end of the day, when you can't think of who you'd be in the world without a job or this job, it's really hard to do that. And you're sort of in the emotional state of burnout um, in these tough situations. And so um, one of the things to think about is, you know, to objectively assess both yourself and the situation allows you to make choices. And really, um, there's only three choices. You can change your job through some version of job crafting, boundary setting, um, and idiosyncratic deals. So you can go to your company and say, you know what, Um, I'm disengaged right now. For me to be re-engaged, it would take this. It could be not getting yelled at by my boss. It could be a flexible day, one day a week. It could be whatever you've sort of figured out. And then negotiate with them as an equal partner um, and decide if that works. Um, The other one is to change jobs. But one of the things that happens to us is we tend to find ourselves in the same situation again. So if you're going to change jobs, you really want to say, does this job have the elements that could cause me to become engaged again? Right. So what is it about me and this work that actually aligns such that I can do it with engagement, which comes with both well-being and emotional um, positive outcomes? And then the final option there um, is you can change your mind. And one of the things that you can change your mind about is whether being engaged in work is even a necessary thing for you. So if you say, you know what, I'm not just a good worker. I'm somebody who really loves to play, you know, sand volleyball on a Tuesday. So whatever happens at work, I'm not missing that. 
or your kids' performances. You say, listen, I'm an okay worker, but I'm not going to put work in front of my family. I'm not going to put work in front of my hobbies. Work isn't that much to me. And so like deciding to put work in its right space uh, for yourself takes some specific effort, but is a solution. And you might say, listen, you pay me enough to get a 60% engaged worker. That's our exchange. I'm okay with it. Uh, and so there is this option for some strategic disengagement um, that might be the best long-term option for your mental health and even your overall productivity. So, you know, I think in that space, we have some tools available for people. Uh, my favorite tool actually comes from this book called The Joy of Work, question mark. And it's by Peter War and Guy Clapperton. I mean, it's in British English, but it really is the best self-help guide I found for sort of assessing work in yourself to move towards a more engaging and happy um, job. Um, and there's other tools available as well, but it really does take some of this um, insight into who you are and what the job truly offers um, to, to do some of that work. Well, I think that's a fascinating and just a really an excellent set of tips for, for any worker who's out there feeling disengaged, um, you know, a set of strategies that they can employ. And, and I guess I would just reiterate the one strategy, Brad, and put it a little differently. You know, it, it's very possible in some situations that your supervisor doesn't even realize that you're disengaged. They think you're um, just as happy as can be and thrilled with the situation and, and don't, you don't, they don't, they don't understand that you're disengaged at all. And so I, I would say, you know, you know, use your own judgment. You know your supervisor. Uh, if your supervisor is the kind of person you can talk to about that thing, I would certainly encourage uh, workers to do that. I do feel like a lot of times workers get disengaged or burn out and their supervisor has no idea uh, until it's too late. I, I really like that point, Ryan. And, and, you know, I think, you know, one of the things that happens when we measure uh, personality um, differences um, or performance differences across different raters is we really see how thin of a slice of our life um, people who we see every day actually see. Because when you go to your job and play the role of your job, a lot of them have demand characteristics to come with some level of happiness right? You don't show your mental breakdowns very often to your supervisor, even if your colleagues see it or you show it at home. And so you might have a supervisor that actually has more tools at their disposal than you realize, uh, but you actually have to come to them with specific requests and let them know where you're at. Uh, and sometimes they'll look at you and say, I have no clue how to deal with this, but at least you'll know then. Um, and so again, some of the things I've coached some of my friends through and some of the people I worked with is to say, how do you create a situation where you're an approachable enough supervisor that somebody who's truly thinking of quitting or struggling with disengagement would come to you authentically with what it would take for you to continue to work there? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good question. <laughs> And I think it's a really good one for a lot of supervisors and leaders to to consider because, you know, it, it, it's often the case when these kinds of problems don't come up right or, or that they're kept away from supervisors, they're kept away from leaders because they're seen as, um, you know, you'll just be seen as a complainer or a whiner. Um, it'll have negative consequences for you. So 
I, I think that's a really important question. And, and you know, I, I think there was some interview some years ago where uh, a reporter essentially asked somebody that, well, how do you um, identify these hidden problems? And then the person started with, well, when I hear about the problems, they said, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm talking about the ones that by their very nature, you might not hear about. And, and that's really where engagement surveys do have options of, of un, unearthing things that you would never hear about, especially if you create um, an anonymous, you know, or, or a confidential situation where people might tell you about the things that they just don't want to to tell you about because they don't feel safe, because they feel like they're being a whiner, um, because some of these other issues are, are going to happen. Um, some advice that I have given people, um, which I I guess I'll stand by is that, you know, you don't want to just drop this discussion on your supervisor's lap, just like in a meeting that you're having um, without any preparation, because then you'll get their raw sort of emotional reaction to it. But it could be just fear, terror. Um, It could be ego defense because they feel like you're judging them. You're going to get all kinds of stuff that might not be healthy to actually see in the moment. So, you know, if it was me, I would actually, number one, you know, ask your supervisor if they're open to such a discussion. Um, Number two, give them your request and what you're feeling up front by email so that they can cope with what it is. And then they can actually come into the moment to have a discussion. But if you just come at them, you know, on a random Tuesday with the fact that you're ready to quit, they're probably not going to respond with, the utmost care and empathy that you'd hope for simply because they're dealing with this surprise. So, you know, there are ways to actually be empathetic to somebody who's going to have to, you know, cope with the surprise and threat of you saying you're truly considering maybe leaving or being disengaged. Well, Brad, this has been great. And thanks for coming on to to talk about this topic. It's something that I, I think Ryan and I both realize, you know, this is episode 38 and we realize we haven't addressed employee engagement yet. <laughs> and, um, I, I think it's something that's important. And, and I think, um, everything that you've said here is, is going to be helpful for anybody that's listening, whether they're, you know, on, um, whether they're the worker that is disengaged or the, the person who's trying to fix the problem. So, uh, really appreciate you coming on. I, I think this will be great. And I think our listeners will really, really enjoy this episode. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on again, Brad. Really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. I I always love talking to you guys and uh, there's just so much to unpack um, in all of these spaces. So um, it's, it's always, uh, it's always a good time. And again, you know, this, this question, I think for people of like, I'm feeling disengaged is just a really good marker to start asking some questions about what choices are available to you in the broader economy um, and in the world. So, you know, you don't have to beat yourself up when you're feeling disengaged. Um, You really need to say, okay, you know, maybe some of these tools um, out here in psychology, uh, maybe really thinking about, you know, my goals, uh, myself um, can lead to some really interesting um, choice options in these spaces. So, well, Brad, thanks again. And uh, we'll, we'll be sure to bring you back uh, on another topic in the, in the future, because uh, you're, you're a great resource for us and we appreciate all you do. Thanks a lot. And that does it for the science of personality podcast, episode 38. Be sure to join us in two weeks for another fun and informative episode. Cheers, everybody. 
This has been the Science of Personality podcast brought to you by Hogan Assessments. You can access all podcast episodes on our website, scienceofpersonality.com or on the streaming service of your choice. See you next time.